In the Old Testament, God chose to set his love on national Israel. They were undeserving, but he still called them out of slavery to Egypt, called them to himself as a special holy nation. He gave them the promised land as an inheritance, and this land was to be given to them, but they still also had to take it. You have to remember, for Israel to possess this land, they had to dispossess the nations who were currently living in it, because the land was not empty. Several Canaanite nations were living in the land, and it was God's will for Israel to destroy these nations, for Israel to be the instrument of God's judgment on these nations. God had been patient with the Canaanite people groups for some 400 years, we learn in Genesis. Despite their gross immorality, idolatry, violence, and more, the time of his patience ended, and it was time for God's judgment on those nations. Now, once God used a flood to judge wicked nations, another time God rained down fire and brimstone to judge a wicked city-state people group. But this time, God was determined to use Israel as the instrument in his hand. So several times, God told Israel and Joshua to enter the land and to fight to drive out the inhabitants. And several times God reassured Israel and Joshua that he would be with them to fight for them. He would give them the victory. God would not fail them or forsake them. He would clear their enemy out in front of them. With God on their side, they couldn't lose. But did this mean Israel didn't have to actually fight? Was God just saying, just cross the Jordan, waltz in the promised land, the enemies will all just drop dead in front of you? No, God said he would fight for them, but Israel still had to bear arms. God would give them the power and he assured them victory, but they still had to fight. This was often stated in the same breath, like Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 2, where God says in advance, he says, when the Lord your God, or Moses says on behalf of the Lord, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, when your Lord When the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. Which is it? Who's the one clearing away the enemies? Is it God? Is it Israel? The answer obviously is both. The people still had to cross the Jordan. They still had to fight to the death. But God promised to grant them the victory. And God's promises could not be taken for granted as if they could be lazy and passive. They did not have the option of letting go and letting God. But no, rather the knowledge of God's presence with them to fight with them, to empower them, gave them all the the courage and vigor they needed to fight and win. Now, I'm not the first one to point out the many parallels between Israel's experience and our Christian experience. But here you really do find an excellent analogy for fighting sin in the Christian life because it really is quite a similar situation. In sanctification, God commands us to drive out the remaining sin in our lives. We have been bought, justified, secured. We, we belong to God, just like the promised land belonged to Israel, just by God's grace gift. But the flesh remains within us, and with it, its lusts. Sin is still present within us. It, it must be driven out. In this war against sin, God promises he will fight for us. He will work within us. He will grant us the victory. He's given us his spirit for that very thing. Victory is assured. But that doesn't mean it's automatic or that we can be passive. Like Israel, God has given us a role to play. We're completely dependent on God's power and presence for victory. But in that power, we are told to fight. We have to, in a sense, pick up arms, resist sin, deny the flesh, drive what remains of it out of our lives. If you don't carry out God's actual marching orders, you're not going to experience the victory over the the presence of sin in your life. He speaks of God is at work within you, but you still must work out your salvation. You must fight sin over the course of several weeks. Now it's been our mission to understand this fight. What is the war against sin in the Christian life? How do you fight it? Just last week, we really concluded that study. Our victory over sin's remaining presence in our lives comes as we walk by God's Spirit. We're filled or led by the Spirit. We overcome the desires of the flesh. Now, it's not our intention tonight really to revisit what we've learned any further. 
But as we draw this series on winning the war against sin to a close, I wanted to return for one final lesson to address a few more topics, two to be exact. The first, how do you deal with defeat? We've learned how to grow spiritually, how to start overcoming the sin that remains in your life. That doesn't mean you will always perfectly carry that out. Sometimes you're not going to be walking by the Spirit. Sometimes you might fall back to walking by the flesh. You'll sin. And so what then? Israel at first had great success in the conquest. Again, by way of example, they crossed the Jordan. They took Jericho. The walls came tumbling down. They still had to finish that invasion, but God was faithful to fight with and for them. But you might recall immediately after that, some of the Israelites grew complacent, disobedient, They did not give heed to God's instructions. They then invaded Ai hastily and suffered a serious defeat. Whenever Israel failed to trust God and they fought in their own strength, they would suffer defeat. And so too, do we suffer defeat against sin when we fight in our own strength, when we don't give heed to God's word? So how are we meant to respond to defeat? How do we deal with our own ongoing sin? Ongoing sin in the life of a believer does not erase their justification, but it can most certainly hinder their spiritual walk, impact their spiritual growth. The war is still won in Christ, but how do we deal with all the lost battles so that we might get back in the fight? And the answer is the same as what God told Joshua concerning that defeat at Ai, and it is to repent. And so, Really, any Bible study on fighting sin needs to include at least some introduction to what we might call the doctrine of repentance, biblical repentance, dealing with when you do stumble, fall, and sin. So that's what we're going to do with the first half of our time this evening. And for a second subject, really going back to that complacency, how do you deal with complacency? The Christian life is a long marathon. It's one thing to come to a little class, learn about spiritual growth, have a little burst of excitement and and, and grow a little bit. Then how do you keep that up for the rest of your Christian life? We're in a long haul marathon here. Anyone can learn about fighting sin, but what will help them keep it up for good? After time, Israel, they had made great progress in taking this land. By the time Joshua is in his final days, they had conquered much of the Holy Land. They had control of many, much of their external borders. They had control over the internal uh, nations that remained. But it's clear that they failed to fully drive out the inhabitants as had been commanded. The book of Judges opens up with a long list of these little city-states that the Israelites had failed to drive out. That was part of their command. God told them way back in Deuteronomy what to do. Again, Deuteronomy 7, he told them to utterly destroy the Canaanite nations. He said, don't allow any to survive in the land. Make no covenant with them. Show them no favor. Don't intermarry with them. Tear down their altars. Burn their graven images. Israel was to be relentless in erasing all traces of the Canaanites from the land. If they failed to do this, Well, then the people that remained in the land would become a snare to them and lead their hearts away from God. And as you probably know, that's exactly what happened. Because as the conquest progressed, Israel became complacent. They were satisfied with their initial victories. and That was good enough. It would be really difficult to finish conquering every single remaining city-state. The 12 tribes, they'd conquered enough territory. They had enough cities at this point to live in. And so they decided to make agreements with the remaining nations, city-states. They made covenants. And lo lo and behold, just one generation later, they're worshiping Baal and the gods of the land. Christians today can experience a similar complacency in fighting against sin. It's a long battle. It doesn't end as long as we're alive. So to keep it up with intensity just seems exhausting. So, that first, they go after the big, egregious, outward sins. You know, they're, they're not murdering or stealing or committing adultery. But the amount of effort required to drive out all the remaining sins, like greed, envy, lust, and to just keep them down, that's just too much. 
So they, they tolerate the remaining sin in their lives. They, they make little secret agreements in their heart that they're not really going to go after those. A little pact is formed to look the other way on these sins. A covenant is made. But sure enough, these sins stumble them, turn them away from God. That leaven will spread. They don't stay small secret sins for long. No, but Christians today likewise need to heed the call to, in a sense, completely drive out the enemy. For we have the same standard to be holy as the Lord God is holy. A type of discipline is needed to keep up the fight against the flesh all life long. We're given no promise the flesh will be eradicated. So it's not that we will ever be sinless. We don't teach a Christian perfectionism, but this is nonetheless our, our standard, our goal to keep up the fight for as long as we live. With that in mind, though, I want to give you also tonight a basic introduction to what might be called the doctrine of mortification. Mortification. Mortification is all about putting to death the flesh, diminishing the flesh. And so we also want to learn what scripture says about that, how we can do that, how that helps us to fight for the long haul. So that is our plan for this final session. We're back to learn to deal with defeat and discipline, you might say. Defeat and discipline. And hopefully this will round out what has been a type of boot camp on winning the war against sin. So we still have a lot to cover. We better begin first half, an introduction to repentance. An introduction to repentance. And just an introduction, we can't be exhaustive. But you, you need some foundation to deal with defeat. Then there's going to be, I'd say, an extremely high likelihood you will sin again in your life before you die. And therefore, we want to know how do we respond to such stumbles? How are we meant biblically to respond? Let's understand the biblical concept of repentance. The word for repentance in the New Testament in Greek is metanoeo, which literally means a change of mind. Repentance always starts with a change of mind, a change in your thinking. When you repent of sin, how are you changing your mind? In the moment of sin, even though you're a believer, you were momentarily deceived by your flesh. You bought the lie. Your flesh sold you that this is good. This is desirable. We, this is worthwhile, this sin. But in repentance, like, like the prodigal, you're, you're coming back to your senses. You're, in repentance, your mind is returning to what is true and therefore what is good. And so repentance first involves bringing your thinking back into alignment with God's thinking. It's, it's a meta-noeo, change of mind, noose being the mind. So you're coming to say the same thing about your sin that God says. That really is uh, closely related to the concept of confession. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, uh, God is faithful to forgive our sins. To confess in the New Testament does not simply mean to rattle off a bunch of the bad things you've done. In that word, confess, homo logeo, homo means the same, logos means to speak, though the word logeo means the, uh, to speak. So to confess your sins means to say the same thing about your sin as God says. That's what you're doing when you confess your sins. Sin is transgressing God's boundaries or missing God's mark. But in repentance with confession, you are you're coming back into alignment with God, so to speak. Now, biblical repentance does not stop there. It's not enough to merely change your thinking about sin. You must also obviously change your actions. And this is only consistent with everything we've learned in this series. Your doing follows your desires. Your desires follows your thinking. So in repentance, if you're changing what you think about your sin, you're not going to want to do that anymore. And so you won't do that anymore. Your, your de- deeds will follow. You're going to change your ways. If you truly come to change your mind about your sin, your desires and your deeds will follow. You will come to hate your sin, turn on it, and stop doing it. Turn away from it. And so a fuller definition of biblical repentance would be a change of mind about sin that necessarily leads to a change of life, change of ways. It's a complete turning away from sin in thought and deed. Now, hopefully you already understand how repentance is a part of salvation. It's required for salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, but faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They always go together by definition. Placing your faith in Christ and repenting from your sins, 
They're both part of the same motion. Salvation, you might say it's a conversion. It's a 180 about face. You're turning away from something, turning toward something else. You're turning away from the path of sin. You're turning toward Christ. That single one about face turn in itself involves turning away from something, turning towards something in the same motion. It's just one motion, but both a repentance, a turning away from, and a faith, a turning towards something else is involved. You can't have one without the other, just as you can't walk in two directions at once. Repentance, faith, they always go together by definition. You can't follow Christ if you're still following sin. But now, okay, so we're believers. We've converted. We've been justified by faith. We are now walking in a new path. We were walking toward perdition, walking away from the Lord, but he got a hold of us. We're converted. We've done the 180. We're walking toward him. That doesn't change. We have repented. We have believed. Okay, is there any sense in which we need to keep on repenting or keep on believing throughout the Christian life? Is it one and done or is there an ongoing aspect? And yes, there is a sense in which both faith and repentance are meant to be ongoing throughout the Christian life. We need to clarify. We have been justified by faith. That can't change. You don't need to redo that or keep doing that. The verdict of that future judgment has been brought into the present. That we are not guilty in Christ. We're righteous in Christ. That's true of us now, today, by faith. That's, that was declared true at the moment of our conversion. That doesn't change. Our conversion cannot be undone if genuine. Our justification cannot be undone. So what happens when we sin after our justification, our initial salvation? Again, we're certainly not unjustified. We don't need to be resaved. Jesus does not need to re-atone. But sin does still have effects and consequences in our lives after salvation. That's why we're told so many times to stop sinning. We can't lose our salvation, but that's not the only effect. And that's not an effect, but there are other effects of sin in your life that need to be dealt with. Just because we're justified, we cannot take a laissez-faire approach to sin. So what happens when we sin after justification? For one, we lose consciousness of our forgiveness and peace with God. We lose consciousness of our forgiveness and peace with God. You come to experience the inner turmoil of sin, namely the guilt and shame that always result. Those are built-in byproducts of sin. You're, you're supposed to feel them. But in Christ, we are not meant to live in guilt and shame. He, he took our guilt. He took away our shame. But as you sin, this is the tension between what is true of us positionally and what is true of us practically, uh, what's declared true of us, yet our experience. As you sin, you, you're going to experience the inner turmoil of sin. You will experience the guilt and shame. And only repentance relieves us of these effects. Not as we do some work of penance or atonement, but simply as we return to the fountain of grace and we're reawakened to the Savior's finished work. Though justified when we sin, our conscience is defiled. Repentance is required to clean the conscience that we might be restored in the joy of our salvation. We're not unsaved, but we need to be restored in the joy of our salvation. Secondly, sin quenches the Holy Spirit. We've learned how vital the Holy Spirit's power is to our spiritual growth, right? The Spirit's power is like a faucet that's been turned on inside of us. The faucet's always running. The water is always coming out full strength. And we are meant to put our cup under the faucet to be filled. And as we're filled, we're controlled, we're led. We walk by the Spirit. We need to be Spirit-filled. But when we sin, we quench the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, we grieve the spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. You're effectively taking the cup and turning it upside down. Nothing's happening to the faucet. The water's still going, but the cup is upside down. You're, you're in sin. You've quenched the spirit. One of uh, my favorite mugs that the kids got for me, it's a dinosaur mug, but on the bottom, it has some snarky comments. It has washing instructions, but then it also says, for best results, use other side. It's kind of hard to fill a mug when it's upside down. 
You're either in the flesh or in the spirit, we learn. These are either or uh, propositions. But though we're saved, you can effectively walk in the flesh, walk in darkness when you're in sin. And that when you do that, you've taken yourself out of the path of the spirit's power. Repentance is required to, in a sense, turn the cup right side up again. That you're back in the spirit's uh, power, walking by the spirit. And thirdly, now, when you sin after salvation, you're not separated from God per se, what we're forever reconciled in Christ, but relationally you have distanced yourself and your relationship with God is certainly not as it should be. This is no fault of God's. You are the one who has moved away in your sin and until you return, you will not experience the benefits of your reconciled relationship with God. You can picture a husband and a wife. They're married. And their status of being married is not affected by any sin or offense between them. That doesn't change their status. They are married. Even when there's sin, they're still legally married. But clearly, when there's serious sin between them, their relationship is hindered. The experience of the love, joy, unity they're meant to have in this union is hindered. So let's just go ahead and use the most radical example of adultery. Let's say a husband commits adultery against his wife. Legally, they're still married, but certainly their relationship is is hugely affected. They're not going to have any experience of fellowship, love, and affection and, and with, with such a sin. What would have to take place for their relationship to be fully restored in joy? And it's possible. What, what would it take? Well, for one, the husband would have to change his mind about his adultery and change his actions You'd have to repent, recognizing his sin, hating his sin, turning away from his sin, clearly. But that repentance must also be expressed. No one would ever suggest that the husband and wife, they're now reconciled simply because the husband has stopped committing adultery. That's necessary, but I don't think that would be enough for any wife. No, the husband must also then genuinely apologize and just seek the forgiveness of his wife. There's nothing else that can be done. It's going to come down to forgiveness. But his repentance must be expressed and forgiveness granted. And that part's up to the wife, but he is to cast himself on the mercy seat of his wife, you might say. But really, so it is with us and God. In reality, all sin is serious to God, that serious. All sin can be likened to a type of spiritual adultery. Every sin. That's why James can convict the church and say, James 4, 4, you adulteresses. Every time we sin, it's like we're betraying our vows to follow Jesus as Lord. We cheat on him all the time. Every sin, that's what we're doing. Now, our sin does not divorce us from Christ. We're in Christ. We will always be in Christ by faith. That that relationship never changes. But you do see the tension between what's positionally true and yet our experience in this life. It certainly doesn't make sin okay. We must repent and confess our sins to relationally reconcile. We must have a change of mind about our sin, leading to a change of action. And that needs to be expressed in prayer to God. Just like Jesus happens to teach us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. Teaching his disciples regularly to pray, forgive us our debts. Or like James put it, which I think we read Yesterday morning in the sermon, James 4, 8 through 10, his call to the church to repent to these believers. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. This is all the language of biblical repentance. The good news is God promises to forgive and restore each and every time. But we find that, yes, believers are meant to deal with ongoing sin through repentance. This is necessary for restoring to them, not salvation, but the joy of their salvation. All the benefits of their salvation as they walk in the Spirit's power. This is necessary for them to unquench the Spirit. This is necessary for them to draw near to God and be restored to the joy of fellowship with God, which you certainly won't experience when you're walking in the darkness. Now, it's a a great example of this. Looking at a lot of verses, but you can turn to Psalm 32 if you're quick. Psalm 32, King David gives us a, a great example of this. 
And even more so, in Romans 4, Paul uses David as an example of justification by faith from the Old Testament. And Paul himself quotes Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is one of the two Psalms David wrote after his great sin with Bathsheba, the adultery leading to her husband uh, to be killed in war through David's plot. David eventually repented, genuinely repented and confessed uh, this sin. And he writes Psalm 32, Psalm 51 uh, after that fact. Very instructive. Look what he says, Psalm 32, 1 through 2. He says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Overall, these are the two verses Paul uses to support justification by faith. Meaning it's just by grace that God does not impute iniquity. David did not earn or deserve any of this forgiveness. He simply called out to the Lord. But God forgives and covers the sins of his people. Only one way, by faith. David himself was an Old Testament saint justified by faith. There's no other way to be justified. Though David was a believer, an Old Testament saint, he he still gravely sinned and so he still repented. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I bet some of you have experienced this. You, you keep silent about your sin. You deny it. You cover it up. You ignore it. You hold on to it. You harbor it in your heart. You refuse to repent, and so you you suffer as a result. Physically, spiritually, your your vitality is drained away. That's because you're you're holding on to poison. You're you're not getting it out of your system. Verse 5, but he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. That's what he did. I acknowledged my sin to you. He didn't atone for his sin. I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Silah. How did David respond? Not by works, not by penance, not by making atonement, simply by confession, which is an acknowledging of sin to God. He stopped hiding and started exposing his iniquity. He didn't do this to inform God, like God already knew. He's not informing God. This is more about David's heart than God's knowledge. But he was coming to agree with God about his sin. He was humbling himself. As James said, humble yourself, submit to God. That's what he's doing. He's appealing to God for a clean conscience. David expresses the same sentiment in the other Psalm of repentance. He wrote Psalm 51. He says in verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And as David pleads, Psalm 51, 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's what he's praying for. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And that's what God does when we repent. Psalm 51, 16 and 17, the the close of that other Psalm of repentance. David says to God, you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And that right there is what repentance is all about. That's what is giving expression to a broken and contrite heart. And though we're fully justified in Christ, we, we dare not be flippant towards sin. We dare not increase in sin that grace may abound. We're meant to take sin seriously, see it as God sees it. And repentance, when we sin, it expresses all of that. And so, yes, we find that repentance is both necessary and renewing to our spiritual walk. As often as you sin and deviate from the path of righteousness, you are to repent and return. Repentance, you might say, recalibrates us toward fully walking toward Christ. If you were to get on a ship in L.A. and sail due west, almost perfectly due west, you would arrive in Tokyo, Japan. They're almost the same in latitude. Almost identical. So let's say you hop on that ship. You set sail from LA. You're heading due west. You get distracted. Take your eye off the wheel. You drift just a little bit. It's like one or two degrees. It might be slight. 
Now, you're still heading west overall. You've not done an about face, but you're off course. And the longer you stay off course, the more trouble you're going to get. It's going to take more work to get back on course. You need to quickly correct course, get back on track, sail true west, repent, turn back, calibrate yourself. Likewise, we need to return our minds, our desires, our deeds back to the Lord's way. This is what repentance does for us. Now, we need to wrap up this basic intro to repentance in a bit. I'll mention just a few key passages on repentance you could further study on your own. Uh, One key one is Jonah chapter 3, because Jesus himself affirmed that the men of Jonah repented at the preaching of, or I'm sorry, the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And so we have a, a verified example of genuine repentance. Jesus said so. You go study Jonah 3, you see many elements of true repentance come from these men, such as a right view of God, sorrow and humility over sin, recognition of sin, commitment to change one's sinful ways, calling on God earnestly, and reliance upon God's mercy. Similar situation over in 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 11, another passage you could study to learn more about repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 11, where Paul contrasts godly, genuine repentance with the false repentance of the world, as he, in a way, applauds the Corinthian church for their genuine repentance. He says, for example, in 2 Corinthians seven ten, he says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. In that passage, you can identify many similar characteristics of genuine repentance, like longing, mourning, zeal, earnestness, vindication, indignation, fear, avenging of wrong, all of which these Corinthian believers evidenced uh, before uh, Paul in his previous letter. For now, though, just to kind of wrap up this intro to repentance, I think practically speaking, as, as often as the Spirit convicts you of sin and you, you're in, in the wrong, you would do well to rehearse that the six elements of repentance as delineated by Thomas Watson in his work, The Doctrine of Repentance. I've not found anyone who's improved on the, the classic Puritan's work on repentance. He just merely takes what scripture says about repentance and synthesizes it together, boiling it down in a helpful way. He expresses that the six ingredients to the recipe of repentance, his analogy, not mine, But these six elements of biblical repentance are, number one, the sight of sin. Number two, the sorrow for sin. Three, shame for sin. Four, hatred for sin. Five, confession of sin. And then six, turning from sin. Just to think on these for a second, what what would these look like in life? First is sight of sin. Simply, you know, do you see that you've sinned? Do you recognize the wrong that you've done. You realize you, you have sinned against a holy God, or are you still in that stage of covering it up, ignoring it, throwing a blanket over it, hiding it in your heart? You have to get to the point where you've been humbled by your sin and you're finally ready to own up to it, put it in the light, not hide it anymore. First, always, is the sight of sin. Secondly, is sorrow for sin. Does your sin cause you sorrow? It should. You should feel a type of sorrow and remorse over your sin. Paul himself said so in 2 Corinthians. There's a godly sorrow leading to repentance. It's that you, you wish you had not done that. Now, Judas felt sorrow for his sin, but it was a worldly sorrow. It stopped there. It went no further than feeling bad. But that doesn't mean sorrow is an inappropriate response. If you sin and feel good, something's wrong. You, you should feel bad that you have sinned. You are meant to. If you see your sin and recognize you have done wrong, a measure of godly remorse is warranted. In sorrow, it's quickly removed by Christ, but a measure of sorrow is necessary. Three, shame for sin. On the heels of sorrow should come shame for sin. Again, thankfully, we we don't live in any of these states. We, We pass through them, but we don't live there. Christ has erased our guilt and shame. He's paid the price. He's covered our shame. But like Adam and Eve, in the moment, they're 
is an appropriate sense of shame that should arise when we sin. Could you imagine a Christian who sins like those in the world and is proud? They boast. It's like a badge of honor. Far be it from us when we sin, we come to our senses like the prodigal. We're not, we're not proud of what we've done anymore. We, we're ashamed of what we've done. There's an appropriate sense of shame, regret. Because we've dishonored God, we've dishonored his name, we've misrepresented him, that should uh, affect us and affect even our affections. A sense of shame is right. That morphs quickly into, number four, hatred for sin. Do you hate your sin? You come to view it rightly. You see its effects. You see it for what it is, what it does. Then you come to respond to it like God does. How does God respond to sin? With the holy hatred. It's only good and righteous to hate evil and wrongdoing. God hates sin. And so should we, especially as we recognize how destructive it is to the world, our own lives, to God's name. Now, speaking of God, number five comes the confession of sin. This is a most necessary step where you're finally taking your sin before God and seeking his forgiveness. You're going to him as the answer to all your guilt, your shame that you experience in the moment. That They get erased by his cleansing and renewing. This is where you come before God in prayer. You express your recognition of your sin, your sorrow over it. You confess before God your hatred of your sin, your love of his ways. Like David, you're not trying to hide anything anymore. You've owned up to your sin. You're asking the Lord to restore you in fellowship. You acknowledge God is just in his judgments, but you're appealing to his mercy in Christ, which you've already received. You're not being re-justified. You're not gaining anything else from the Lord per se, but you're availing yourself of what Christ has already done in your experience of sin to be restored in your practical daily walk. And then lastly comes turning from sin number six. This is not necessarily last in sequence. You should turn from your sin, like stop doing it as quickly as you recognize it. But of course, as you seek the Lord's forgiveness and restoration, a necessary, a continual turning from that sin is, should result. Your repentance must result in a change of ways where you, you, you cut off that sin from your life. There's a lot more, and I would always recommend a, the small book, The Doctrine of Repentance, truly a Christian classic by Thomas Watson. But a, a helpful, simple, practical guide to walk through repentance as you pray in your heart, seeking the Lord. I also likewise counsel in myself, Psalm 32, Psalm 51. You pray those as your prayers. You make them your prayers as you're just pouring out your heart to the Lord. What is it about? It's a broken and contrite heart. God's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Far be it from us to ever be proud in our sin. But as often as we sin, may we quickly be humbled, go to the Lord, pour out our broken and contrite heart, and then quickly bounce back up. You're never meant to be the beanbag who you fall down in sin. You just stay down. You mope around in sin. You wallow in guilt and shame. Christ has freed us from all guilt and shame. You're never meant to live in that state. You experience it. That's the effect of your sin. But you're meant to run quickly to the cross, avail yourself of his mercy, which you've already received in Christ, and bounce right back up like the tennis ball and get back to seeking the Lord. Not flippantly, but genuinely. There's, there's, this is the process. As often as you sin and stumble, respond as God would have us. Come to our senses, change our minds, change our ways, Return to God, and that is repentance. So take seriously repentance in your war against sins, how we deal with defeat. Now we got to move quickly here. We got some more to cover. There's a second half. I'm going to shift gears because I also want to give you this final session, a little intro to mortification. So let's do that now. We got to shift over an introduction to mortification. When you come to salvation, you're new. You've been made new. But sin remains within us. We've learned you still got the flesh. It comes with sinful lusts and desires. Christ has granted you a victory over sin, but the enemy has not fully been driven out. It remains in the land in us. Okay. The Lord gives us a spirit, equips us to fight. And it's a fight. Titus 2, 11 and 12. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. 
Or 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We still got them, but we must abstain from them. They're, They're fighting us, our soul. We must fight back. And so our fight against the flesh, it really is like a war. Now, more specifically, though, there's a pair of verses that tell us to kill the flesh. That's what it means, to mortify, to put to death the flesh and its desires, its deeds. We're in a life and death battle. There can be no compromise with the enemy. There's no ceasefire here. There's no agreement or arrangement to be made with the flesh and its lusts and desires. This is a take no prisoner, take no mercy operation or show no mercy. As it's been said, be killing your sin or it will be killing you. John Owen. So this is what we mean by mortification. I'm just going to read the two passages for us that teach it most directly. And for the sake of time, Romans 8.13 is the first. Again, if you're fast, you can flip in your Bibles. But Romans 8.13 says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You also have Colossians 3, 5, which I'll read in the ESV, puts it most directly. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You've got to put to death what is earthly in you. This is where we get the term mortification. But a little bit further, what does it mean? How do we do it? We've got to think back to one of our theme verses in this study, Galatians 5, 16, 17. Walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desires of the flesh. He says, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. You're reminded we have this war going on within us between the Spirit and the flesh. They each have their own sets of desires that are leading us either toward God or away from God. They're competing within us. And uh, we have now two sets of desires after salvation. And the stronger desires win. And will dictate what we do. It will carry us away into deeds. Our, our deeds are determined by our desires. Our strongest desires. Okay, so we learned all that. We spent a great deal of time learning then. We need to feed the desires of the spirit. In a dog fight, which dog wins? The one that's bigger? Which one's bigger? The one that was fed more. So we need to be feeding the desires of the spirit. And when the spirit's desires within us are greater, stronger than the desires of our flesh, we will deny them. We will not do them. We will overcome them and find the way of escape, pursue righteousness, bear the fruit of the spirit. We learn that we feed our new righteous desires by renewing the mind. It happens through the mind. So you saturate it with truth. Okay. But we did not yet address the other side of that equation. Shouldn't we also at the same time be starving the flesh? Yeah, we want to feed our new self, but should we not also starve the old self, starve the flesh? And the answer is yes. That is what we mean by mortification. There's no indication we're going to be rid of the flesh in this life that will ever be rid of it 100%. But we can diminish the strength of the flesh, the strength of its lusts and desires which come out of you. And that is what mortification is all about. How do you do that? Well, you feed the spirit through the mind by renewing the mind. It should come as no surprise to you that you starve the flesh also through the mind. You need to starve the mind from all the, of all the influences that would feed and incite your fleshly desires. Again, if you're quick, turn to a key passage, Romans 13. I want to introduce you just to one essential passage for this tactic, Romans 13. It's kind of like a defense against the flesh. In the sense that the best defense is a good offense. We're starving the flesh that it cannot assault us so strongly. Romans 13, he's explained the gospel. He's now into application. Romans 12, Romans 13, this is instructive. We don't have a lot of time. Verses 11 through 14 is really instructive on the Christian life. We live in the light, not the darkness. Uh, But I want, want you to see verse 14 in particular. He concludes this section and says... But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So the first half, 
put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is precisely what we've been learning about in this whole study. That's, that's like the succinct way of saying everything we just learned about in walking by the Spirit. It's God's power through the Spirit that ultimately sanctifies us as we partake of the means of grace. We renew our mind by the word, prayer, the church. Yet we added this all must be Christ-centered. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's really what our, our beholding the glory of the Lord that transforms us into his image, we learned. So we need to be setting our minds on Christ, letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us, fixing our eyes on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. It, it's about the glory of Christ, that his glory is what transforms us as we behold it and eat it and partake of it. That's what the spirit works to tra- uh, works on to transform us. But Paul puts it as succinctly as ever, the best way you can put it, just put on Christ. That's how you grow, put on Christ. That perfectly expresses the positive side of sanctification. But why this is such a special verse is it also succinctly puts the negative side of sanctification in the second half. Also, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Again, you got the flesh. This is Paul in Romans, so we know he's got the same definition of flesh here. The flesh has epithumia, lusts, same word, has these desires. These lusts are fallen. They want to take us outside of God's bounds, God's law. We overcome these lusts when our new desires are stronger and win that tug of war. And so we need to be feeding our new desires. But at the same time here, we need to be starving these old desires. We need to be starving the lust of the flesh. And so practically it comes down to this. Make no provision for the flesh. Word provision is actually sometimes used of foresight or providence. So like don't plan in advance to gratify the flesh. Stay out of the path of the lusts of the flesh. Don't lead yourself into temptation. Here we are taught to pray by the Lord. Do not lead us into temptation. How many times do we lead ourselves right into temptation? We kind of set things up, even, I don't know, subconsciously or or maybe consciously, arranging the the tiles so that we walk right into the lion's den because your flesh wants you to sin and you're, you're deceiving yourself. No, avoid temptation. Don't stumble yourself. You know the lusts of your flesh better than anyone. You know what triggers you or tempts you the most. So especially when you're weak, you should be avoiding those trigger points and avoiding those tempting circumstances. This is just biblical wisdom at this point. Look at the, the verse before. Let's use examples. He says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Now, three pairs of sins that often go together. Just some examples. Okay, so if you struggle with drunkenness, carousing, verse 13, well then, get rid of all alcohol in your home and stop hanging out with friends who want to make you drink, proving they're actually not really friends at all, by the way. So cut them off. If you struggle with Sexual promiscuity, sensuality, lust, verse 13 mentions. Okay, don't be home alone, if you're unmarried, of course. Don't be home alone late at night with someone from the opposite sex. Or don't be home alone late at night alone with your computer. With pornography in mind, consider programs that limit your access or provide accountability. Maybe cancel that HBO or whatever else that keeps stumbling you. Make no provision. If you struggle with strife and jealousy, that verse 13 mentions. Now consider ways of avoiding high tension situations. If you've got that certain family member that knows how to push all your buttons, you might, if possible, limit or guard your exposure to that person when you're weak. Now, look, you're still on the hook for every sinful response that's still on you. But look, this is just wisdom, especially if you're weak. Be wise in the situations and circumstances you put yourself in. Make no provision. The applications to this principle are limitless. We're not trying to create a new law here. So we don't prescribe anything. This is not about legalistic, legalistically imposing rules on other people. But you can impose on yourself certain limitations case by case. Because you know your flesh. How can you make no provision for yourself? And we have to add, this is not how you win the war against sin. 
This is why we didn't start here. This is why we're ending here. This is the addendum. This is not how the battle is won. The battle is won by putting on Christ. That's sanctification. If all you do is try and limit yourself, let me cancel the internet, let me stay away from that person. If that's all you're doing, you're not going to be sanctified. If you're not putting on Christ, but then you try and make no provision for the flesh, it will be futile because you'll find some way to sin. The heart, the flesh that really wants to sin, it's going to find a way. There are not enough computer blocks available to stop someone from lusting if they really want to do it. Only putting on Christ changes that. There's no ultimate solution in making no provision for the flesh. But as you put on Christ, this is real wisdom to support you in the battle and fight your flesh. It's not either or. It is a both and. Putting on Christ is certainly supreme, but this is wisdom. And maybe you need to implement some of this wisdom in your life. Especially those who are spiritually weak and they're falling continually into a besetting sin. Wisdom would dictate just cutting out that which keeps stumbling them. It is a good thing when someone finally reaches a critical mass of conviction that they just get rid of entirely this source of temptation in their life. They just cut it off. That is the radical amputation Jesus had in mind when he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You remember, he's not talking about mutilation, but mortification. Just get rid of whatever's stumbling you. You're proving too weak to endure, to handle it. Cut it out. Now, not all the sin we struggle with, though, comes in the form of actions. I bet you'd agree a lot of our sin struggles is just up in the mind. It's all internal. Someone, by looking at you, would never know you're sinning in such a way. But on the inside, you know. Greed, lust, covetousness, anger, pride, envy, hatred, discontentment. There's so many heart-level sins that exist, and they may never show up on the outside. But still, we must rid ourselves of these heart sins as well. And so I want to add a little note here. How do you make no provision for the flesh when it comes to these more internal sins? I bring this up to make the point that you also need to be exerting self-control over your thoughts. Self-control over your thoughts. This is a part of mortification. To not allow yourself to dwell on sinful thoughts or feelings that come from your flesh. What you need is a spirit-empowered self-discipline over your thought life. Winning that war in the mind. We've learned that a bunch. Part of this is self-discipline. First Timothy 4, 7 says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. But at the same time, though, you know, Galatians, we learned about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 23. You know, the last fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. You realize that's a result of the Spirit's work. That's a result of walking by the Spirit. You cannot just be self-controlled. You come to control yourself when you're Spirit-controlled. Also, Romans 8.13 said, uh, we are to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. The point is, this is still a work of the Spirit. Even our our efforts of self-discipline and self-control must be Spirit-inspired, Spirit-empowered. You're not going to win the battle of your thought life in your own strength. But now, as a function of walking by the Spirit, everything we learned about, now you need to learn to apply the fruit of self-control over your thought life. Not just your deeds, but also your thought life. You may not be acting out in sin, but sin can still breed in the mind and spread like leaven. And the more you dwell on and cherish sinful thoughts and attitudes, the more you are poisoning yourself on the inside. It's like an animal that has died, a deer that has died in a small pond. And the longer it sits in there, the more defiled that water gets. The more poisonous the water gets. You need to get that out real fast. But that's the effect of letting thoughts, sinful thoughts, attitudes, desires fester in your mind. It's going to mess you up. There might be enough outward external constraints to keep you from ever acting out on these thoughts. You might never do that thing you're thinking about. But that doesn't mean it's okay. Your mind 
can still be a circus of sinful thoughts and that can have a soul deadening effect. Even though on the inside, out on the outside, you might still look good. So mortify sinful thoughts by denying them. Through self-control, you must deny these thoughts. Win the war of your thought life. Can I suggest you can do this in three ways? Try and get a little practical here. Now, first, don't remember past sins. Don't remember past sins. Don't dwell on sins or experiences of the past. You've got them. Surely you've got them. It's not like you can actually erase your memory bank, but don't gleefully relive the times when you got what your flesh wanted. You've been forgiven of all of those sins. God has removed them as far as the east is from the west. Don't go chase them back down and bring them back that you can think on them again. As often as they come in your mind, your flesh might incite you and they pop in your mind. You can't do anything about that. That's a temptation. Now you have a choice. Are you going to dwell on them or are you going to take them and cast them back out to the far east or the far west? That's what you must do. By the Spirit, discipline your thoughts, not dwell on past sins. Second, don't imagine present sin. Don't imagine present sin. Maybe you're not doing the deeds, but you want to so much that you give into imagining it. You fantasize with delight. That, that can be just as bad. This is why Jesus said, lust It's adultery in your heart. It's just as bad as heart level adultery. It's just as sinful to the Lord. And these heart or mind level sins can be just as defiling. So don't don't daydream about sin. That's going to defile the conscience. Repent of such thoughts. Take every thought captive. Replace it with something edifying. These thoughts pop into your mind. They must be replaced with something edifying by the power of the Spirit. Then thirdly, don't plot future sin. Don't plot future sin. And don't use foresight to plan for your flesh. Don't set your flesh up to succeed, to be gratified. It's not hard in a way, almost even subconsciously, to to plan your day to put yourself in the path of temptation. You've probably done it before, but do the opposite. You should be planning for holiness, not sin. Don't plot future sin in your mind. But past, present, future, you need to exert spirit-empowered self-control over your thoughts, your plans, your motives. I mean, control your thinking. That is such a huge deal. And speaking of that put-on side of it, that's Philippians 4.8, isn't it? Where Paul tells us, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's what you should be dwelling on, filling your mind with that which is good and not uh, that which is bad. And as a final burst of practical application here, we've been learning a lot of so much uh, of what goes into your mind, how it has a huge impact on your, your, your thinking and therefore your doing, right? This is why we desperately want to be filling our mind, renewing our mind with God's word. But when it comes to mortifying the flesh, this is also why you want to be starving the mind of all influences that incite your flesh. A lot of mortification is about starvation. And so practically today, we got it bad because we have way too many influences in our mind. Think of all the media we consume that didn't even exist a couple hundred years ago. Do you ever stop and think about everything that enters your eye gate or your ear gate, as the Puritans used to say, that the influences coming into your mind, how are you being influenced by these things? Is it for good or for bad, for better, for worse, for holiness, for ungodliness? Consider all the, the movies and the shows you watch, the music you listen to, the websites you visit, the social media accounts you follow. Are they... Feeding your mind, even subtly, feeding your mind with a worldview that does not accord with Christ. Are are they leading you into temptation? Are they stirring up the lusts of your flesh? And you have to examine yourself. You know yourself, what you're you're letting in, what you're viewing, thinking on, how it's affecting you. But if if you find you're, you're being led into temptation, if you find you're being influenced away from the Lord's ways, cut them off. Again, the answer is not legalism. I'm not going to give you a list of shows you can and can't watch. That's legalism. 
But you need to consider how you're being tempted and walk wisely. You know, beyond media, I also want to mention, this also applies to the friends you associate with. Because in the ancient world, they didn't really have a lot of media to fill their minds with. It wasn't as big a threat, you might say. Maybe that the Greek theater, the play, they might want to walk wisely with. But media has not always been as strong an influence. Friends, peers have, which is why the scriptures are filled with cautions against being associated with the wrong people because they're going to have a mind-killing effect, a mind-non-renewing effect, mind-corrupting influence. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be de- deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Those around you who are not of the Lord, seeking the Lord, loving the Lord, if, if they're your influences, they are corrupting your mind, not renewing your mind. It might be time for you to consider carefully who you surround yourself with. Not that we hate the world or disassociate fully from the lost, but there's no fellowship with light and darkness. Go to the light for your fellowship. Your your David Jonathan friendship should be those in the light. Try drawing near to the church like we learned about. Those who will encourage you day after day that you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's a mind renewing effect as we learned. And so consider your friends as well. All these influences in your mind, you need to, to keep watch over, guard your eyes, your ears. The, what you let into your mind so powerfully uh, shapes your thinking, which shapes your wanting, which shapes your doing. That happens for better, for worse. So let us fill the new desires of the spirit through the word and starve the old desires of the flesh. That is mortification. Our time is up here. We're going to stop here, but I hope these notes on repentance and mortification have just further helped uh, to equip you on how to wage war against your sin for the the long haul. And we are in a long haul battle. It's a war over our souls. And you can and, and should and must give thanks. Christ has won that war. Going back to how we began the first session to be reminded, the war is over. Christ has won the war. He is the victor. He is the one who has overcome sin, all your sin, Satan, the great enemy, and even death itself through his own death and resurrection. He's purchased our souls. We belong to him. He's redeemed us. We have a place in heaven where we're renewed. We have total victory in Christ alone. We can never forget that. Precisely because of that, God gives us marching orders to fight the sin that remains as we live in the tension between justification and and glorification. And so we have to accept his marching orders to, to fully drive out the enemy that remains within us. He gives us the power of his spirit to do so. And so we need to just march on. It's all to his glory. It's all to our good. God's word though equips us on how to do that. I pray you've received some of that equipping and now you carry it forth. It's on you to, to now march, to march on, to, to consider everything you've learned, take it to heart, put it into practice. And as you do so, you can be assured you will grow. You will bear that fruit. And all you do, though, and all your striving, don't lose sight of Christ. Christ has to be our last word because he's our only hope. So constantly and daily, fix your eyes on him. He is at the beginning, the end of our faith, our salvation. We need Christ. So fix your eyes on Christ. Can't think of a better last word than one of my favorites, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When we follow Christ passionately, we will never grow weary or lose heart in our war against sin. All right, let's close this all off. Another word of prayer. Christ, we simply exalt you this evening and, and, and magnify your name. That has to be our, our response to praise the one who, who answers our sin, who wins the war against sin on our behalf. We need to remember daily the gospel, the means of our salvation, that, that you came, you 
lived a perfect life, free from sin, in full perfect obedience to the Father, as the perfect spirit-filled man, yet still died on the cross to bear our sins, to take them all away, to remove them from us as far as the east is from the west by paying for them and suffering the wrath of God. We thank you for your atonement, your victory and resurrection, approving your, you hold authority over life and death itself. And you've now granted us your victory. And we, we have to thank you for that. We have to live in light of that. What, what else are we doing? Uh, but trying to live on, live out Christ, put on Christ and follow Christ. So we pray you show us your glory. And we pray we, you enable us to see Christ in the scriptures and, and the church and one another and to magnify him as we seek to follow him and put on him and his ways in our life. Fill us with your spirit. We pray that this teaching does not fall on deaf ears, but convicts us and changes us. We don't want to be those who simply fill our minds with truth and, and equipping and good knowledge. Hearers, not doers of the word, but now uh, use the spirit in all of us to stir up that conviction uh, to lead us to be doers of your word. We want to grow. We want to bear fruit. We want to honor your name. We want to be blessed. And so equip us thoroughly and then make us doers. We offer all up to you in praise. We give you thanks for this whole time and our study together. And then we pray in Christ's name. Amen.